Today's scripture is taken from Galatians 4, 1 to 7, found in page 1153 in your pew Bibles. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns a whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Just a moment of quiet. We've just heard this word from God. Let me lead you in a prayer and a moment of quiet before it. Father, we've just listened to a word that was written thousands of years ago to a community far away, culturally distanced from us. And yet we believe that in that, there is a living, breathing reality to be heard, to be known, to be given ourselves over to. So we pray for wisdom, for your Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us ears that that are attentive, that hear, that make connections, that is able to bridge the distance, both time and cultural, so that we hear your living voice to us today. Speak, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter the new year, 2016, here at Knox, we are going to resume a teaching, preaching series on prayer that we began in the fall. We took a hiatus during Advent and Christmas, and now we're launching back into it. We looked in the fall at some of the Psalms, some of the the lived, real prayers that uh, the Bible contains. And and in this portion, we're going to look at some of the New Testaments uh, and other uh, passages more focused on a practical bent more about the how do we pray and the different types of prayer. But perhaps maybe some of you wonder, well, why are we spending a whole lot of time on prayer? Maybe, you know, prayer seems like for religious people, for really religious people, but is it really practical for the rest of us? And well, the answer is yes, it is. Because here, here's the thing, there, there's this universal instinct among humans to pray. You can map this out across the centuries of history. How, how human beings have always had this instinct to, first of all, to ask, is there a God? And then secondly, how, if so, how do I communicate with that God, with that being? And so, so prayer has been just a natural, universal part of the human experience. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not part of a church, maybe you're here because, you know, some family brought you, or maybe, you know, you're wondering, how did I ever even end up in church today? Even you, I'm convinced, have prayed. You've prayed in some way. Reg Bibby, one of the top sociologists in Canada, 
He's a professor at the University of Lethbridge. He has studied religion in Canada for, for decades. And while he charts some of the decline of church attendance, which he says, however, there is a resurgence going on, nonetheless, he says, the vast majority of Canadians pray. Over 75% report that they will regularly pray, whether they go to church or not, whether they believe in God or not, they will pray nonetheless. Maybe you're like a, a friend that, of mine that they dealt with at one point. They were meeting. A friend of mine was de- meeting with someone. And then in the course of that meeting, asked this woman, do you ever pray? And the woman, with, with some look of condescension on her, her face, said, no, never. But then confessed quite quickly with a little smile at the edges of her mouth. She said, but sometimes I pray, I wish upwards. Sometimes I wish upwards. I'm convinced that everyone wishes upwards. Evidence that everyone has the capacity, the stuff, to become a person of prayer. And we live in a world that deeply wants that, that deeply wants some soul experience, some intimacy with the infinite. Your heart wants to pray. You want to commune with the living God more than you realize. That is why people are so into spirituality in our society. That's why people are into yoga and meditation. That's why people pursue aesthetic experiences through the arts. That's why people pursue so many different sexual experiences because your heart is longing for God. You desperately want to pray, to come to face to face with the king of the universe, although you might not be able to recognize that longing. So this instinct to pray is pretty universal, but there's a second reality about prayer that's pretty universal too, and that is that we struggle to pray. For some, prayer has really just felt like a duty. You know, someone else telling them, you have to do this, uh, and and it feels like you never get anything out of it. You know, you might as well be talking to the walls or the ceiling. Maybe you you got into the posture of prayer, you fold your hand, you close your eyes, you bow your head, and you even said the word God, but for all intents and purposes, you could have said the word tree or dog or something else. So we struggle with prayer. We have questions. We're confused about prayer too. I mean, think of all the questions that you have about prayer, that your friends have about prayer. Does God answer our prayers? Does he answer some of our prayers? Does he answer none of our prayers at all? Does he answer sometimes, but not all the time? Does God answer, uh, you know, think of all the scores of people who have struggled with that inside and outside of the church whose spirits sometimes get a little crushed because they have prayed, they have asked fervently, but they didn't get the job they prayed for. And their mom died of cancer. And their child was born without a heartbeat. And they ended up in a car crash. They weren't kept from that. And so we're we're confused about prayer. And the way some Christians talk about prayer, I think, sometimes can add to the confusion we have about prayer. Because sometimes, you know, you might hear people say, you know, we prayed and God just showed up. Which begs the question, well, where was God before that then, right? Did God just, you know, was he off doing something and then apparently decided to show up and do something that should have been done and then he finally got around to doing? Or other people say, well, you know, you you just got to understand that God's going to do what God's going to do. 
okay, but why pray at all then if God's going to do what God's going to do? If God is this completely independent, sovereign being, doing his will, whatever, what place is there for prayer in all that? So no wonder we get confused about prayer. And so today what I want to do is, is sort of dig down to some foundation pieces about Christian prayer. And I do use that term very specifically, Christian prayer. Because Christian prayer, while it's connected to this broader species, this genus of prayer, to the core human instinct to pray, Christian prayer is uniquely different than all other forms of prayer. And the foundational piece is this, how you pray, how you relate to God is so fundamentally connected to how you understand God. You tell me about your prayer life, and I'll have a really pretty decent idea of the God to whom you're praying, your understanding of God. Maybe another way to say this is that many, not all, but many of our struggles and questions about prayer are most often rooted in a skewed or a a misunderstanding of who God is. Most of our questions and struggles with prayer, not all, but most of them, are rooted in just a skewed understanding of who God is. And so many of our questions and struggles about prayer find their resolution and make sense because of what Jesus introduces us, what he welcomes us into. And what Jesus introduces us to is prayer as relationship. Jesus introduces us to God as Father and welcomes us into his status, the status that Jesus has, which is a son in a, in a treasured, cherished relationship with the Father. Jesus is inviting us into the very life of God and giving us both the status of a son and the experience of being a son of God. That's what we read in this passage this morning. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to a, a group of Christians who's, who's uh, in Galatia. And they're really struggling to understand who Jesus is. And, and they figured that they needed to add a whole number of religious duties to their life, to their experience or encounter of Jesus. And, but Paul's writing them to remind them that, no, no, you know what, the, there's simple foundational good news about Jesus. Paul's announcing this remarkable news that God has given us both the status and the experience of being a son of God. And this passage, it's, it's, it's one of these all-encompassing passages. Paul really goes through the history of, of human history in this passage. He, he, he talks about some of the beginnings of the world a little bit later on in this passage. He talks about the history of the Old Testament and then inserts what has now happened in history through Jesus Christ. And what we see, what we see are two key actions that have happened because of Jesus. The first is in verse 4. God has sent his son into the world. Verse 4 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God sent his son into the world to save the world. Now why? What was the outcome? What was the result? That we might receive sonship. Now, I've been using sonship, sons, and I, I'm very sensitive to the concern that that language might come off as patriarchal or might be smacking of male dominance language. But I'm using it 
intentionally because the Greek term here is, is a precise legal term. So in that society, um, some people were granted the full legal standing of a son of an adopted male, which in that society conveyed special rights and privileges that a female would not have had. Um, so in that Greco-Roman world, let's say a wealthy person has no heirs, when they, you know, getting on in years, they, they could adopt someone to pass on all their wealth, all the inheritance to. And so the adoptee was taking out of some previous state, whatever that was, maybe they were a slave, maybe they were just a, a free but poor man, and they are given access to a whole new relationship to this other person, to this father. So th this term is, is for a legal transaction that happened. Um, so I, I want to continue to use the word sons or sonship, because it, it doesn't mean male, don't think that at all, uh, but it refers to a new status, adopted. And this is what has happened through Jesus Christ. Christianity is the good news that your identity, your status has changed, has radically changed. Your relationship with God has changed because of Jesus Christ. You are loved by the creator of the universe, by faith. Jesus has put something upon you, a new identity, a new status. You have sonship. You have all the rights and privileges that Jesus has. No matter what the internal voice of your head is constantly screaming at you, no matter what other people have said about you, the, your reality is you are accepted, you are approved, you are loved. It is the voice that comes to us that it came to Jesus when he was baptized. When Jesus was baptized, as the, the dove, the spirit descended upon him, a voice was heard. It was the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son. This morning, two children were given that same gift. They're given this new identity in Jesus Christ. You are my beloved child. They were given a new status approved, accepted. And through faith in Jesus, that status is offered to each one of us. Now, take a minute to imagine living with that reality, that soundtrack playing in your head as opposed to all the other soundtracks that gets played. Instead of that cranky voice of judgment, instead of those thoughts of failure or inadequacy that constantly plague you. Can you imagine the voice of God speaking to you saying, you are my deeply loved child. Jesus was sent into the world to give us that reality, that status. We are sons of God. But there's more. In verse 6, talks about a second action of God. And there's a beautiful parallel going on here. Using almost the same language, same structure. Verse 6, it says, because you are sons. So because you now have this status of sonship, because you have all the full legal rights and privileges of being a son, because of that, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit by whom we call out Abba, Father. So the same outline. Someone gets sent to do something and produces something. Look, let's look at some of the, the interesting differences. Instead of Jesus being sent, it's now the spirit of Jesus. Instead of being sent into the world, the spirit is sent into our hearts. 
It's a very personalized thing. And the outcome of this work of God is, is not a new legal objective status that's already been given. It is an experience of that reality now. It's a subjective experience by which we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit is doing this inside job in us, helping us to feel like sons, helping us to appropriate, to, to make real that experience in our lives. And we need help doing that because we don't always feel it. Many of you know um, both Betty and my children are adopted. Owen and Lily came into our family by way of us legally adopting. Our family and our little nuclear family, there's no one who's tied by blood. Not me and my wife or my children. But we are tied by two different legal proclamations. One that was given in marriage and one that was given through two court orders of a judge. So their status changed when they were brought into our family. When the judge signed the adoption order, they became fully our children. As they did, as they became part of our family, I have never once thought of them as adopted. They're just my kids. It's never entered my mind to think of them as any other way, that they've never been part of my family, which is exactly how God understands and sees us through Jesus. They're just my kids. Now, our children know that status. They know that they've been adopted. They know they began their lives in the womb of another person and that now they're adopted part of our family. They know. They're a rinders. Um, but sometimes what I'll do is I'll come up to them and I'll give them a big hug, embrace them, and just say, I love you. Now, these days, my newly turned 13-year-old will sometimes say, that's sort of random, Dad. <laughs> but they do sort of sink into that embrace and enjoy it. Now, am I giving them any new information about their status? They know it. But I'm trying to help them experience that reality. I'm trying to make it real for them. This is what the Spirit does. This is what the Spirit is sent to accomplish. This is what's being described here. The Spirit comes and helps us experience the love of God so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Think of how remarkable this is. I mean, that word Abba, it's an Aramaic word, and it, it, it means data. It's one of the most, the first words that a child learns, Bithia and Calvin are going to speak those words at some point in their life as they gain language. Um, and it, it's an expression of just this beautiful trust. A child is so trusting, right? So expecting. They just sort of throw open their arms, Dada, and they fully expect their father, their parent, to give whatever they need to provide for them. They figure it's going to certainly come. Children just cry out, Dada. Abba is also the intimate, private word that Jesus used whenever he talked to his father. And this is remarkable because there's no other example in all literature whereby someone else might refer to God in such personal terms. Now, God is likened to a father, 
in other places, but never called, never personally called Abba. It was such a personal name. This is what Jesus calls his father, and this is what Jesus invites us into the very same. And all the purposes of God in creation, in creating the universe, are realized in this one word. Your heart, my heart, crying out, Abba, Father. It has always been the desire of God's heart. It has always been his desire for you and I to be in that sort of relationship, to be a part of God's life, to have communion with him. Think of the wonder of this. The eternal God who who spun out this universe with all its complexity The God of the universe thought it more important for you and I to know this, to participate in it, so that he would take whatever measure necessary, including ripping apart his own family, ripping apart his own triune nature, rather than losing you. The Spirit comes. We are part of that family. We cry out, Abba. It's really a prayer, that one word, Abba. It's directed to God. And and this one word helps us understand God and it helps us understand prayer. Prayer is not about getting things. It is not about therapy. It is not about finding internal peace or, you know, making your life work out. If those things come, that's a nice little thing. But that's not what Christian prayer is about. It is about knowing God, about relating to this God, to call him Abba, Father. Faith is always directed to the person of God, knowing that he, he takes delight in you. That he wants you and I to be part of his life. This is the heart of prayer. To be brought into the life of God himself. For you and I to participate in God's life. And we pray by tapping into the sonship of the true son Jesus. By by appropriating his relationship. And you know where you see this? You see this in this little closer to many of our prayers. You know how we all Christians close their prayers? In Jesus' name. Amen. And that's not, and that's not a, you know, a little signal like, okay, we're done, prayer, boom, in Jesus' name, we're all done. That's not it. it. It's a very intentional, thoughtful way that Christians have put into our prayers to recognize something. It is saying all that we've just prayed, God, we're offering this to you in the authority, under the status that Jesus has won for us because we are now your children. Some of people have suggested really what we need to do is actually put that at the front end of our prayers. Shouldn't tack it on at the back end. Put it at the front end because we need a reminder at the front of our prayers. This is how we engage God. Um, we, we start our prayers in this way because we learn then how to pray like a son of God. We learn to relate to God like we are Jesus himself. So when we say Jesus, in Jesus' name, it's calling attention to this gospel truth about who we are. We don't come groveling or sniveling before God, you know, because we fear him. and We somehow got to make ourselves low enough, you know, that God will accept us. We don't come with a long list or trying to manipulate God to get things from him. No, we come as children. We start out in Jesus' name, reminding us of what we're doing That prayer is entering into and enjoying this life with God. And we participate as full sons. Now let me connect this quickly, deeply with praying and then we'll be done. 
Our sonship, this status, provides the most profound intimacy and communion with God, but more so than this too. Prayer is us joining with God in changing the world. And here's where you catch sight of some of the utter privilege. I mean, the communion with God is enough, but all of a sudden, when you deepen this, it's, it's going to fry your brain. Think of this. Jesus has been participating in the life of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And they together have been involved in all things, creating the world and now saving, redeeming the world. So what does that mean? Remember, because of the work of Jesus, we have been adopted into that life, into God's family. We have been given all the rights and privileges of his son. We are welcomed into the same place that Jesus occupies. You want to know what that means? Look to Jesus. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is right now, the right hand of the Father, and he was praying. He is talking to his Father, which is what prayer is. He's asking the Father. He's looking around this world. He's praying for different situations. He's praying for your life, for this world. And we are invited into that same work. And there's one theologian from South Africa, a guy named Andrew Murray. He's helpful in giving us a window into what this means. He says, okay, so God is sovereign, right? He's the one who determines all that is, all that's to be. So he asks the question, so what on earth should our, do our prayers really mean? You know, can they really, if this is who God is, can they really influence God at all to do anything otherwise than what he might or might not do? And he says, you know, is, isn't the promise of answered prayer just sort of a condescending thing, you know, God patting us on the head saying, okay, that's nice. But he says, no, it's none of that. It's actually far more profound. The answer is in the sonship of Jesus, in our adoption of God as sons. Let me quote Andrew Murray again. He says, when the father gave the son a place next to himself as his equal, as his counselor, there was a way opened for prayer and its influence. Because Jesus sits beside the father, asking the father, praying for this world. And together, the father, the son, and the spirit are are working out the will of God for this world. We are invited to that same place. Your prayers, they are not throwaway words. Your prayers, because of your status as sons, you share in that place Jesus has, which means you take that place and praying to the Father, the Father incorporates that. He listens to that, and that profoundly affects how the will of God gets affected. It's an astonishing reality. The decrees of God are not decisions made by God without reference to Jesus the Son without reference to the prayers and requests of Jesus. Andrew Murray continues, he says, In the counsels of God, the Son represents all creation, always has had a voice. In the decrees of the eternal purposes, there is always room left for the liberty of the Son, and so for the petitions of all who pray to the Father through the Son. Which is an astonishing thing. In prayer, we step into that place that God holds open for us, that God invites us into. We enter the life of God. And in Jesus' name, that is a reminder to us that God actually listens and incorporates the prayers, that we are the delight of the Father, and he delights to have us join with him 
in shaping the world. This is the staggering wonder of this prayer. Not, not to get something from God. Come on, that is so small. We are invited by God through prayer to enjoy the living God and to join him in shaping this world. So Christian prayer is both personal communion, intimacy with God, and active intervention on behalf of this world. That, friends, is Christian praying. Everyone prays, maybe not like this, because we don't know God. We don't know God well enough. So instead of that, we wish upwards. But God invites us to something so more profound. The gospel tells us that instinct to wish upwards is evidence of a God who is pursuing us, inviting us both to intimacy and to join him in changing the world. And there is nothing more important or rich or life-altering than this wonder, captured in that heart cry, Abba. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you. We do it in Jesus' name. And we thank you so much for the relationship that you have granted us, how we are adopted children. Thank you that Scripture tells us to all who received, to all who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. This is who we are. This is the truth. Some of us have a hard time with that, Father. Maybe because we have fathers who who didn't embody or express that sort of love. And so it's very hard for us to think about you in a positive, helpful, nourishing way this way. And so we pray, God, that this invitation would be an invitation to be reparented, to come to know what true fatherly love is all about. Some of us have been wishing upward for a long time. We sense, we hunch there's something more, but we just haven't known you. And maybe we just feel far from you, disconnected unsure about prayer. God, would you teach us more about who you are? Would you reveal the truth? Would you teach us about this fantastic, tremendous relationship we are invited into? Teach us how to talk to you like we are Jesus, like sons with full rights and privileges, with full access to you. Pour out your Holy Spirit in all of us so that we might experience this reality. So it wouldn't be just a head thing, but it it would be a living reality. So our hearts would cry out, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.